There's a lot of things I love about this church, but one of the things maybe I appreciate this morning more than ever is Kyle's weekly faithful preaching of the word and the way he does that and how much I, and I think we all grow from that. And also Jeff's preaching and Dan's preaching. And at some level, I feel like you have the fourth string quarterback in the pulpit today, but hopefully we can still uh, make some completions here. Let's pray. Dear God, we come today humbled, humbled by the grace that you have so wonderfully given to us in the gospel. As we look at this passage in Titus today, help us to consider all the ways your grace affects our lives and our world. Give us a perspective that is based on the truths we see here and give us an understanding of what your grace means for how we are to live our lives. And may the product of our study today be lives that are lived to your glory and to the service of those around us. Amen. Well, ever since I can remember, I've loved science. The beauty, the complexity, the organization of God's creation has always held a fascination for me. It is, of course, what drew me towards studying the human body in great detail as a physician. And through my studies, I came across so many incredible facts about the way God has made us, like the enzymatic process that gives us energy or the electrical system in the heart that makes it beat. But the most fascinating thing, I think, for me is this, DNA. Think about this. All of you, everyone was not that long ago one single cell, a union of sperm and egg, some a little bit longer than others. That cell was so small, you could only see it with a microscope. It was 0.0019 inches in diameter. And within that tiny little speck was all the information necessary to make your brain, your bones, your liver, your kidneys, everything. Now, when you consider how complex each of those organs are and the fact that they all have to work together to keep you alive, well, it's incredible. That much information so efficiently packed into one tiny cell, God's creation is hard to comprehend, isn't it? Well, the scripture we're looking at today reminds me of DNA. (laughs) This passage in Titus is packed with marvelous truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, And what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the lives of believers. Now, since there's so much here, we'll be covering a lot of ground. So strap in with me and come explore this wonderful passage in God's Word. We're in the book of Titus, as Paul mentioned. And let's just look a bit at the setting and context of the verse. This book is a letter written by Paul to his co-worker, Titus, who was on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And when the letter was written, Paul had recently completed a journey to the island, taking Titus with him, and that trip had resulted in the establishment of some churches, some new churches. Paul wanted to be sure that these new churches were properly established, so he left Titus there. Now, false teachers were present, and Paul wanted to be sure that these churches would be set up properly despite their presence. So in this letter, he gives a description in chapter 1 of how to set up elders, And then in chapter 2, he gives descriptions of proper Christian living in different people groups. 
So Paul had established these churches and wrote this letter to be sure that these churches would be set up correctly. Now, we understand this assignment to Titus was a tough one. The people of Crete were proverbial in the ancient world for immorality. The moral conduct of the people there was not ideal, to say the least. And with this group of people, this message from the false teachers would have been well-received. But Paul knew that the gospel, even in Crete, could produce real godliness even in this group of immoral miscreants. And so, he, and here, here in the middle of chapter 2, gives an amazing summary of how the gospel is the source of godliness. And that is the subject of the passage we're looking at today. Paul here tells us how comprehensively the grace of God affects our whole existence as Christians. And how that grace affects our past salvation, our present sanctification, and our future glorification. And this incredible status God has given us as members of his family. Okay, so enough context. Let's look at our first point. God's grace in the past, salvation. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, on the surface, this may be slightly confusing for a couple of reasons. First, what is the grace of God referred to here? And second, what does Paul mean when he says, bringing salvation for all people? Before we look at those two questions, we should pause on that first word, for. This word reflects on that previous section giving guidance to various social, age, and gender groupings. Why would Paul think that, given the immoral social setting in Crete, pastoral presence and instruction are going to make any difference? Well, Paul believes that there is a force that will touch even the most hardened of sinners, and that force is God's grace. The Greek word is charis. What is grace? Often defined as undeserved or unmerited favor, it is freely given unmerited favor and love. But what is this grace of God referred to here? Well, if you turn to the book of Ephesians verse two, or chapter 2, verse 8, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The grace of God is Christ Jesus. Back in Titus, we see that fits with the words that follow in verse 11, where it says the grace of God has appeared. We know that Christ did appear and lived a sinless life, died a painful death to atone for our sins, and was resurrected to the right hand of the Father. So that's the answer to our first question. The grace of God is Jesus. What about the second question? What does Paul mean at the end of verse 11 where he says, bringing salvation to all people? Does this verse support universalism? The belief that Christ's work saved everyone, regardless of whether they are elect or whether they have repented and in faith proclaimed Christ as Savior? It obviously cannot mean that because we have the rest of the Bible to help dispel that notion. For example, in John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to his Jewish opponents and says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus would have no cause to say you will die in your sins if, he's, if he was just saving everyone. So this passage cannot mean that. But what it, does it mean? 
Let's look at a couple of other biblical passages to see if we can tease this out. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in 2 Peter 3.9, it says that the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All these verses would imply that God's offer of salvation is indeed offered to everyone. But what about Ephesians 1.4, where it says, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Or Romans 9, where Paul says that God chose Jacob over Esau, though they had not been born. Not on the basis of anything Jacob or Esau had done, but according to his free and uninfluenced sovereign purpose. Hmm. These verses say that God, that God is the one responsible for saving people, the ones we call the elect. And that in the final analysis, he is the one who decides who is saved and who is not. Well, we of course enter here an issue that our finite human minds cannot comprehend. And that is the intersection of God's sovereign election of certain people, clearly taught, and God's offer of salvation to all men, also clearly taught, comes together. And here's how John MacArthur puts it. I warn every sinner, if you perish in your sin, it's your fault. And I say to every saint, if you're saved, give all the glory to God. So when we look at our verse today, we know it doesn't teach universal salvation, but appears to refer to the universal opportunity for salvation. We also note that this verse is referring to a past event. It says that Christ has appeared, bringing salvation. And for the Christian, that past event has happened. All of their sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. In the court of God, they were declared innocent of all charges. Christ's record of perfect obedience has been applied to their account. For them, the grace of God, Christ, has brought about salvation. But we don't come to a service like this assuming that everyone has a status with God that is like that. Some may still be living in the reality of unforgiven sin before a holy God and all that that implies about both their present life and their eternal future. And so we as elders of this church plead with anyone in that state, repent and believe. Romans 2.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. While no one can explain how after all we said above that it can be that simple, these passages are clear. When you humble yourself, turn from your sin, and believe and confess that Christ is God the Savior who is able to atone, that is, forgive your sins, you are saved. And you will enter into a state where the grace of God has appeared. A past event will apply to you as well. Okay, that's verse 11. Let's skip over verse 12. We'll come back to it. And let's look at God's grace in the future. Glorification. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here the passage takes us to the future, and it says we are waiting for something. Well, when we think of waiting for something, it almost sounds like idleness, like waiting in line to check out at the grocery store. But this is not that kind of waiting. It's an active, expectant kind of waiting. Think of Simeon waiting for the Messiah in Luke chapter 2. This kind of waiting is a posture not of passivity, but of dogged confidence in God and his sure promises. And what promise are we speaking of here? Well, it says we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we see the future dimension of God's grace, the second coming of Christ. His first appearance was lowly, born in a manger, died on a cross, but this appearance will be different. His second coming will be one of glory. And that glory is tied to the fact, as it says here in this verse, that he is both our Savior and our God. This is the final chapter in the history of man, the time when a commentator named Yarborough says, quote, evil and its proponents will be judged. God's kingdom and its subjects will be vindicated and exalted. Believers will see the Lord in whom they have trusted as he is and will be made like him, end quote. When we understand the reality of this, that needs to give us hope. This is a hope that transcends our circumstances or situation. All that we have endured in terms of hardship and deprivation will be forgotten in the magnificence of what the last day will reveal and the age to come will showcase. Could there be a greater reason for hope? This hope should permeate our daily consciousness, expectations, and decisions. It should cause us to trust God even in the most dire of circumstances. Okay, so we've talked about the past. We've talked about the future. Let's turn our attention now to the very practical issue of the present. God's grace in the present. Sanctification. Having bookended this issue of grace with both the past and the future, we come to this very important issue of how we are to live now in the present. How does the fact that God has appeared, salvation, and will be appearing, glorification, affect how we live today? The answer lies in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While our sin has been forgiven by Christ's sacrifice, and while we will be perfected by his second coming, God is concerned about how we live today. He is telling us that believers, those who have been redeemed by faith in Jesus, are meant to live in a certain way. They are to respond to his gift by demonstrating to the world what being saved looks like. In short, believers are to be sanctified. Now, we noted that justification is an event, a point in time. In contrast, sanctification is a process. Grudem defines sanctification as a progressive work of God and man 
that makes us more and more free from the power of sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Note, it is progressive, that it increases little by little over the course of a person's life. And note that while justification is 100% God's work, as we talked about above, sanctification is a mutual work of both God and man. Some like to say, let go and let God, or let Jesus take the wheel. But this is not how the Bible describes sanctification. And we can see this when we look at verse 12. We see here both negative and positive imperatives, that is, commands. First, the negative. He says to renounce ungodliness. This is a reference to a Christian's conduct, or in the negative sense, our misconduct. We are to conduct ourselves in a way that is consistent with our state as saved people. This is our fruit. We call our fruit, right? What other people can see in our behaviors and actions. Obviously, our testimony to unbelievers will be formed by our fruit, by what, what they see here. Good, good fruit will intrigue them and cause them to wonder why, why we are acting differently. Bad fruit will cause them to turn the other way and will tarnish the reputation of Christ. Examples of bad fruit are not included here, but would certainly include the works of the flesh that Paul refers to in Galatians 5.19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, we know that such vile conduct comes from a source. And that source is, of course, what the Bible calls the heart. This is the inner man, the soul, our thoughts, desires, and will. So in that vein, Paul goes on to say that we are also to say no to worldly passions. These are the internal impulses, what we might call lusts, appetites, cravings. Sexual compulsions would certainly be in view here, but also anger, hatred, ambition, or other urges that could result in uncontrolled speech or behavior. But saying no is not our only obligation in this verse. We are also called to put on, not just to put off, but also to put on. So on the positive side, Paul says in verse 12 that we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. After telling us how not to live, he tells us how we should live. We might notice that there's three directives here, and they seem to be aimed at three different targets, at ourselves, at others, and the third to God. The first is directed toward us and says to be self-controlled. The King James translates this soberly. The NASB says sensibly. The word used in each of these instances is the Greek word sophron, which means discreet, sober, temperate, or to be sound of mind. So self-controlled obviously means that one has control of self. That is, they are able to control their passions and have righteous constraint on their impulses. If there's one characteristic of the true Christian, it is that they deny themselves. Loving ourselves comes quite naturally and without effort, thank you very much. What is difficult is to love others as much as we love ourselves. 
And here Paul, along with Jesus, is telling us to control that love of self and direct that love toward God and others. We are to put off those worldly passions and control ourselves. It's been said that the DNA of sin is selfishness. As we control ourselves and put off selfishness, we put off sin. So Paul's first instruction is directed toward us, and it tells us to be self-controlled. And as we do that, it will naturally lead us to the second term, where he tells us to be upright. This word might be translated righteous. The same word is used in Matthew 1.19 when Joseph discovers that Mary is with child and they were not married. And it says her husband Joseph, being a just, an upright man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's pretty obvious Joseph could have publicly announced her pregnancy and maybe had Mary stoned, but he handled it in a righteous way since he was a just and upright man. This is what Paul is trying to communicate here, that in our actions with others, we are to be righteous, conducting ourselves as Christians, as those who understand that we are members of God's family and thus should conduct ourselves in a certain way. One can see again that this involves looking away from the self and toward God and others. If Joseph had only selfishly been concerned about his own sense of justice or his own reputation, he would have conducted himself differently. But as a just man, he was unwilling to put Mary to shame and did his best to do the right thing, the thing that would glorify God and serve Mary in a very difficult situation. Living in a fallen world, we find ourselves in difficult situations with people, don't we? How do we conduct ourselves? Are we upright in our dealings with people? Is our testimony as Christians obvious in the way we deal with difficult people and situations? Is our response any different from an unbeliever? Would someone watching your response be cut to the heart by your compassion and grace and forgiveness that you demonstrate in your conduct? We can think back to this issue of forgiveness we were talking in Bible Hour last week. This is what Paul is telling us here in his instruction to be upright. We are to conduct ourselves righteously when dealing with others. Paul's last put on here is the phrase, godly lives. The Christian life is one of dependence on God. As one commentator said it, godliness is not a consequence of human resolution or willpower. It is a relationship with God that results in a life honoring to God. Looking inward comes naturally, as we noted. Godliness is an outward focus and comes from knowledge of and meditation on who God is and what he has done and will do for us. And that naturally leads back to our main point, and that is the grace of God leads to the reality of salvation, the promise of glorification, the already and the not yet, as Paul Tripp puts it, and prompts us in response to live godly lives. Ultimately, it is all about him, about God, his son, and the spirit that has been sent to us. And when we understand this, it creates in us a love for his word, 
and a desire to not only learn about it, but to apply it and let it change us. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we learn and apply God's word, we cannot help but be changed. And that change will lead us to put off ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we might pause here and ask a very practical question. Does the fact that you're a Christian affect how you live? For example, what about entertainment choices? Do we consider whether the things we watch or listen to are pleasing to the Lord? Are our standards any different from the world? Does the love of Christ control us, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5.14? Does the love of Christ control how we make decisions in this area? Just something to think about. We move on to the last verse, verse 14. And Paul finishes this passage with a doxology concerning our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the basis and the foundation of everything we've said to this point. It says here that he gave himself. Now, note here who is doing the work. It is not us. God does not love us based on our good works or conduct, but only because of the work of Christ applied to us. This is so critical to remember. We strive to live godly lives not to be more pleasing to God, but because Christ gave himself for us, as it says here in this verse. Since Christ made the sacrifice necessary to redeem us from all lawlessness, we in response desire to serve him and keep his commandments. That is, do what he says. This is the motivation to live godly lives. It is a loving response to our Savior, not a legalistic demand from a tyrant who always expects you to do a little more than you are able. Christ's sacrifice was a gift neither earned nor deserved. And this leads us to where Paul tells us that Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people of his own possession. We now come to one of the most exciting and amazing aspects of this verse and of the gospel. Given the price that was necessary to redeem and cleanse us, we would understand if God's attitude toward us was one of resentment or disdain. We've all felt that way about people who have sinned against us or hurt us deeply. But instead, he tells us that we are a people of his own possession. This is an amazing fact. We Christians are not only forgiven and heading to heaven, but we are a part of God's family. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, asks the question, what is a Christian? And he answers, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. We have been adopted into God's family And Packer says, this is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification. Here's how he argues it. Quote, justification is a forensic idea 
conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. But adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us, establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by the Father is greater, end quote. God bringing us into his family is a wonderful thing, and like all aspects of the gospel, completely undeserved. When we truly comprehend all that this entails, we can do nothing but sing praises to our God and thank him for such a wonderful gift. And we reach here the end of the passage. After everything that's been said, how does Paul conclude? He says that God's people are zealous for good works. You think of the word zealous. This is an intense kind of desire, an eagerness to do something. And a characteristic of the Christian who truly understands all that we've talked about today is that he will respond by being eager to work out his salvation by love and good works. We are all zealous about loving ourselves. Paul says we should be just as zealous in loving our neighbor. In conclusion, I think you can see how amazing and far-reaching the grace of God is. For those of you who are familiar with the biblical counseling that is an integral part of this church, this passage summarizes much of what we try to communicate when we work with hurting people. I pray this passage will give you hope and cause you to examine your life. And I pray that that examination would cause you to be thankful for God's grace in salvation, to be hopeful about God's grace in glorification, and obedient in God, God's grace of sanctification. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, we are thankful for your grace and for all that it means to our lives. We pray that your grace would change us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.